Hello, and welcome to episode 8 of Brainstorm Kitchen. Uh, hello, yes, uh, welcome to the, to the episode. So, this week, uh, it's actually interesting. What you're about to hear is actually the, re- the first ever interview that we recorded, well, I recorded, for the podcast. So, it's quite old, but we're only getting to it now. Uh, and I was unfortunately not able to make it for this episode, so it's just, uh, it's just Quinn <laughs> on this side. But, uh, it's a really awesome interview with a chef named Jeremy Umansky. He's pretty well known for his work with, um, koji-based fermentation, but you'll hear a lot about that in the interview. Um, also... Oh, I was gonna say, I just also got a chance to listen to this, and I mean, I learned actually a, quite a bit about fermentation, and it was really, really amazing, actually, so definitely stay tuned for it. And uh, one quick note before we get into this interview, it is it's so old that the restaurant that we talk about toward the end is now open, so if you're in the Cleveland area, go check out Larder, which is Jeremy's now open restaurant. That's it, I guess. So enjoy the episode. Hello, welcome to this very special episode of the podcast. I am here with our first guest, uh, Jeremy Umansky. Uh, thank you very much, Jeremy, for joining me. You're welcome, Quinn. Nice to be here. It's uh, definitely not the second time we've recorded the intro. <laughs> oh, well. All right, so let's not uh, beat a dead horse, but uh, why don't you uh, quickly go over a bit of sort of your background for our audience who may not be aware of your work. Sure. Uh, I'm born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, I grew up here, uh, wonderful family, great Midwestern values, uh, really entrenched in food, right? That's, uh, I, I find that anywhere you go, food is a centerpiece to, to good culture and good people. Uh, my grandmother here, she was a kosher caterer. And uh, by the time I was about 11, I was working a couple weekends a month for her uh, in her kitchens. And uh, as time went on, it became, I became more and more involved. Uh, going up through high school, too, I also worked in some ice cream shops and some pizza joints and a few local restaurants here in uh, the suburban Cleveland area. Uh, and from there, uh, after studying cultural anthropology, I uh, decided to go to culinary school in the Hudson Valley. Uh, while I was there, I was very active, uh, co-convivium leader of Slow Food Hudson Valley. Uh, I managed a a 40-acre vegetable farm for seven seasons there, uh, opened a restaurant up there, and uh, met my wife. (laughs) That's always, that that was such a great time. Uh, Anyways, from there, I ended up going down to New York City and uh, worked for a few markets that specialized in local foods and farm to table, uh, and also worked for restaurateur Mary Redding, who uh, at that time had Brooklyn Fish Camp. I was the, the head chef up there, and she still has Mary's Fish Camp uh, in the village on Charles Street. 
uh, this whole time, you know, a huge focus of my work has always been food preservation. Uh, the curing of meat and seafood, fermentation, uh, autolytic processes. And this has always been stuff that I've, I've specialized in. So uh, by the time I came back to Cleveland in 2014, uh, that, that spring, uh, April of that year, I linked up here with uh, Chef Jonathan Sawyer, a James Beard Award winner in Cleveland. And uh, we hit it off right away. Um, started working for him, uh, doing stuff for uh, his various restaurants and was based out of Trentina, his northern Italian restaurant. And then uh, about two years ago now, uh, my wife and I decided it was time for us to, to move on and start up our own place. Uh, we're calling it Larder. It's an Eastern European delicatessen and we'll be open at some point this fall. That's awesome. We'll definitely get to that. But first, let's kind of talk about what I think most people would consider sort of your breakthrough, and that is using koji in uh, charcuterie and meat processing. Because again, other many chefs have uh, dabbled with different kinds of misos and other sort of koji projects. Uh, products, but uh, you know what you're doing is uh, pretty unique. Well, thank you, thank you. Uh, yeah, you know, for for me, it, it was a very natural process. Uh, so at the time, working with Chef Sawyer, uh, he came to me and said he he wanted a, a miso that would have an Italian identity, and uh, we started off making one with garbanzo beans, and and up until that point. You know, I was familiar with miso, I understood it, at least I thought I understood it, um, and I thought I knew how it was made, but everything I was researching and looking up kept coming back to koji. Uh, so finally, I, I dug my heels in and, and really learned how things were made, and I fell in love with this transformative mold. Um, it was a very natural progression for me to actually grow it on meat. Um, I make a lot of charcuterie, and at that time was making a lot of charcuterie, and uh, to to create certain textures and flavor profiles and tastes within charcuterie, and also to uh, be in line with uh, established safety standards through uh, the FDA and through local municipalities, most charcuterie is inoculated or encouraged to grow different molds on it. Uh, and after I'd right. been working with Cody, uh, for for a little bit, um, I realized that it could work much like these other molds do, but it does it so much faster. Some of these molds can take months to establish themselves, where Koji is there within 48 hours. Yeah, no, again, I have even dabbled with it myself. And uh, again, we can uh, get back a little bit to the charcuterie, but I am curious, what made you think, okay... Koji can kind of replace these other molds used in charcuterie, but then what made you take the leap to basically do, for lack of a better word, fresh meat? Uh, so it actually started with the fresh meat. So uh, we had a really intensive in-house pasta program, and they still do at, at Trentina. And uh, I had been doing a series of tests making rice noodles. And I was developing these rice noodles at uh, the same time that we were starting to make miso. And one day it just clicked in my head that, 
know, the the koji is growing on rice. Why wouldn't it grow on rice flour? Uh, so I grew it out on a little bit of rice flour and that was successful. And then I started thinking, well, what if I use this as a medium to coat a piece of food? It, it literally is just a thought that just popped into my head. And I went rummaging through our walk-in at the time and I found some scallops. And I thought to myself, if, if I could get this to grow on these without it spoiling, this could potentially have some uses that we just don't know about yet. And that's exactly what I did. I, I, uh, I dusted the scallops and rice flour and, and koji spores, uh, mm -hmm. incubated them at high humidity, about 90, 95% relative humidity and about 85 degrees uh, for just about two days. And they were, they looked like little wheels of camembert. Uh, they didn't spoil and ended up cooking them up and they were delicious uh, you know we tried some as sashimi too just to see what it was would be like um and it was delicious and from there i thought you know it, it had transformed the texture and the taste and the flavor of the scallop so much a lot of what we were picking up on was reminding us of aged beef in a lot of ways so the next kind of series of tests were along the lines of well let's grow this on different cuts of meat and see what happens and at that point, it wasn't about the charcuterie. It was all about using this as an age accelerant, uh, basically replicating a product similar to a 30 or even a 45-day dry-aged piece of meat within 48 hours uh, is what we were going for. Uh, so so that's that's actually where it all started. Oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's a pretty big leap, especially going from rice to rice flour to seafood like you know i think for most people they would not try that well you know and and i've heard that a lot in, in my mind though it, it makes perfect sense it, it makes it makes perfect sense to see to go the furthest point that you can go and if that fails then you take a step back and try something that that maybe uh a little more conducive to working out and this just happened to work on on the furthest set variable um and from there it was a matter of, of okay if it works on this it's going to work on almost anything else yeah but no, it's it's pretty amazing again i i understand sort of the protective nature of the fungus but uh my brother he's been to culinary school so when I told him how you koji culture meat and seafood and like the temperature ranges, he almost like his head almost exploded. Right, and you know, there's there's certain things that we do to minimize risk and to make it safe. Um, a like you just mentioned that that crowd that that herd immunity that um, koji provides, right? So it it grows extremely fast. Um, it itself can put off defenses comp defensive compounds that award off different types of bacteria and other microbes. Uh, also, we also make sure that when we're doing these things, we use a little bit of salt and sugar. Uh, when we're making the charcuterie, we do use curing salts on the meat first. So we do a number of things to ensure that safety is first and foremost. And with the fresh cuts of meat, you know, here's the reality. 
uh, E. coli, salmonella, various other other pathogens, they the contamination has to happen in the first place. So if you're you're as clean and as careful as you can be, you already have a very low risk of of contaminating. And then from there, once the culture is established, uh, you're cooking the foods to safe temperatures. And things like E. coli and salmonella are surface dwelling pathogens. So they don't travel travel intramuscularly. They don't, they don't travel through a piece of meat. They just grow on the surface. And that's what allows us to cook a piece of meat, and even if it has been contaminated, and it still be safe. So, you know, knowing all these factors is what led, led me to, to kind of be able to say, all right, so this can be done in a safe manner. It's, it may be done in a manner that at first, until we start to explain the process to people, might be a little intimidating or, or scary even, uh, but it can be made made safe very simply. And, and charcuterie is a great example of that. Many, many sausages, uh, uh, especially dried cured ones, are actually fermented first before they're, the meat is put into casings and then hung to dry. And in those cases, you're taking ground meat and fermenting it at room temperature for several days before you go ahead and do it. So there was already precedent through culinary antiquity for being able to do this and have a safe food. For sure. And I guess, uh, again, I know you've sort of kind of explained the process in your awesome TED talk, and I believe you may have a few other talks online. But have you ever considered making just a straight-up tutorial on uh, how to do this? Yeah, and, and that's that's something that's in the works now. Um, uh, <laughs> in my life right now, it's a point of finding the time to, to get it actually done. Um, but, you know, the, the process is as simple as um, we, we take a cut, whatever it may be, we season it with a little bit of salt to taste. This is for would be for the age accelerated. Uh, a little bit of salt to taste, uh, a little bit of sugar, and then we dust it in rice flour and koji spores, and, and then we put it in our incubation chamber. It's 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 that simple and straightforward. So very soon here we'll we'll definitely have have some uh, detailed you know step by step uh, uh, visual how tos on 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 how to do it. Um, but like I said, it's a matter of finding the time. For sure. Well, not to toot my horn, but uh, especially by the time this episode comes out, I may already have a video. I've done some charcuterie, as you know, and uh, I may attempt a uh, fresh cut soon. Yeah, yeah. That no, that that's fantastic, and and that's something, Quinn, that we like. Me and and uh, my wife and and our other uh, chef business partner Kenny Scott like we we encourage that there's a reason that we're so outgoing with all the things that we've developed you know we, we don't keep anything essentially behind closed doors you know we don't we don't feel that anything is proprietary information we want people to experiment with this and innovate and create and, and put their own spin on it so that's highly encouraged so I'm just if someone asks you could always uh, forward them to me until you get your own video up. Most definitely. <laughs> yeah, I've got, uh, I did the prosciutto, as you saw. 
Yeah. I've got uh, like a it, bacon. Gorgeous. Yeah, no, honestly, I didn't think it would come out because some water got directly in the uh, bag. So it was kind of like sloppy when I pulled it out of the incubator. And uh, then I just said, whatever, and hung it, and it came out gorgeous. That's fantastic. You know, and that, that that's a, a testament right there to, uh, you know, a, as complex as and intimidating as some of this may seem to people, you know, there's there's lots of room for forgiveness with these uh, these techniques and these processes. And, and that's the beauty of it. You know, that you've got to think that the use of Koji dates back five to nine thousand years. Uh, to a time before we understood what it was really doing and how it was doing it. And if we could have people at that point in time do it, any of us can do it now. For sure. And honestly, I think one of the great things about Koji is, one, it is so forgiving. And two, like for me, I don't know if you've ever done this. Have you ever tried hanging charcuterie in non-ideal conditions? Because I guarantee you, where I hung my prosciutto was not a, like, curing cellar. <laughs> sure, I mean, you should see my basement at home. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it, it's, unless you invest a considerable amount of money, it's difficult to have ideal conditions. And uh, at Larder, at our restaurant, we will have those ideal conditions. But, you know, when I, when I do a lot at home, and, and I do plenty here, um, you know, it's, it's not perfect environments, uh, but as you said, it's extremely forgiving. Yeah, almost using koji versus other, other molds that are known, not only is it faster, but again, it is sort of let you get away with a little bit of, you know, inconsistencies, and it might even be easier for like an amateur in the long run. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. And, and, you know, going back to to the history of usage and who is using these things, you know, if we look at, at charcuterie and the curing of meat, um, I mean, this was something that everybody did at home. This wasn't something that was the province of chefs. This was the province of grandmothers and grandfathers, um, you know, moms and dads. Children would help make this. So so it, it it's I ideally suited for someone doing at home. Yeah, and for me, honestly, again, I have an Italian grandmother, so I've had, you know, in my opinion, the best prosciutto, and, uh, yeah, my first attempt came pretty close, and that's all thanks to Koji. <laughs> and there you go. Proof is in the, in the prosciutto. Exactly. Okay, so I guess, to tell me a bit more about larder like what is it a restaurant is it a store is it what what is it i uh, so i guess the one of the better words to describe it it's 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 a kind of a new word in the restaurant industry now they call them grocerants um which is somewhere between a restaurant and a grocery store um but that's just a new word for an old concept and and that concept is the delicatessen uh the Delicatessen is somewhere where you could go and have certain select items ordered right fresh to eat there. 
and other things were, were other items that, that were there were things that you would take home and cook with. And we, we are opening up a what we feel is a very true delicatessen. And we've been very intentional in calling it a delicatessen versus a deli uh, for that reason. Um, we're focusing on Eastern European cuisines, which uh, also includes parts of Western Asia. Uh, so we'll be doing Russian food. We'll be doing Ukrainian food, Polish food, a little bit of Slavic, um, uh, you know, Basically, if it's if it's in uh, in that Eastern European sphere, we'll we'll be be experimenting with and, and making the food. So, uh, you know, we'll have charcuterie and things made in house. Uh, we'll have sandwiches fresh to go. We'll also, you know, be caring, like you said, is it is it grocery store? Is it a restaurant? We'll we'll have different seasonal produce uh, from local producers and dairy and eggs and those sort of things for retail also. That's awesome. I, uh, uh, are a lot of those charcuterie items going to be kojied or traditional? Or are you doing a mix? What's the plan? Uh, it, it'll, it'll be a mix, but we're, we're at a point now where there's very little we touch that koji isn't applied to. Um, and like I said, we, we don't use it all the time, but we use it a lot of the time. Uh, even even something like a roast beef, uh, you know, our, or our pastrami is a great example. Uh, that gets marinated in shiokoji uh, while it's being cured uh, before we braise it and smoke it and then serve it. So uh, it it does such amazing things to food. I, I liken it this way. So foods are essentially a locked door in terms of the things that make them up. Uh, we have their base ingredients, which, which are fats and proteins and starches. And koji is the key that unlocks all of those into other things, different aroma compounds and esters, fatty acids, amino acids, uh, different types of sugars. So koji actually can create... And, and essentially make flavors and tastes that were always hidden in a food and bring them to the forefront. And we find it extremely useful, so we use it in a lot of things. Yeah, no, and I, I totally understand. Again, I am slowly becoming obsessed with koji myself. I'm, I'm actually going to attempt to grow some more uh, rice koji from my previous batch. So I can uh, stop buying spores. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah, and we do as much of that as we can. You know, part of our issue is too we can't we can't always grow enough spore to maintain the level of production that we do. So we do buy in when we need to, but we try to produce as much of our own as possible. Oh yeah, for sure. Now, honestly, bang for your buck, koji spores are pretty cheap. <laughs> they they are. They are. I mean, if you source a 40-gram packet of spores and disperse it out um, over, I think it's about 400 grams of flour, that can easily last somebody six months, and it might run you $35. Yeah. Uh, I, I, guess, I guess a question I'm curious about. One, anything that didn't work... Not that it was necessarily bad, but that it just 
you've applied Cody to it, and you're kind of like, eh. Um, you know, I I think that's I think that's relative because we, uh, it happens from time to time. Um, I'm trying to think most recently if there's been anything, and honestly, I I, I can't say. I can't say for sure. Not that I can recently recall. Um, you know, well, there you go. And, and well, but the thing is, too, it's it's more a matter of you know, Koji has these different expressions, right? You've got your your fresh Koji rice, your Koji kin, as they call it, and then you have the things that you make from that. You've got Shio Koji and Amazaki, which are both the the Shio is like a salted rice porridge of the Koji that has all these enzymes in it. And the Amazaki is, is similar, but it's not salted. Um, so sometimes it's a matter of, oh, we grew koji on something that maybe we should have marinated with one of these these other substances. Or maybe we marinated or, or used the liquid uh, from like an Amazaki in something, and we should have done it a different way. So we do encounter that, but we've very rarely found things that it just doesn't make better. Uh, 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 my second question is, have you experimented with all, because I'm going to attempt some of this, with um, whole vegetables, especially starchy vegetables? Because I feel like that could be interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and we, we do a lot of that. Uh, literally, uh, uh, we've done everything from growing koji on things like potatoes and carrots uh, and, and radishes to uh, no salt ferments using koji in those ingredients uh, to heavy salt ferments uh, really have, have run a wide gamut. Um, and we get some, some really, really fantastic results with them. Uh, you know, I, I think the big thing to keep in mind, and this is one thing I, I, I always tell people who are starting off ferment, fermenting foods and curing foods, is just because it didn't work out as you intended doesn't mean it's not good. It just needs a new culinary identity. So For sure. just just because uh, maybe the pickle wasn't salty enough or uh, the piece of cured meat didn't dry out enough or over-dried, it doesn't mean it's it's a lost cause. You just got to find a different way to use it. So that's that's first and foremost. So I, I do have to ask, just for my own curiosity, how was, like, the carrots or the other root vegetables? Like, what's, what sort of happened? Uh, they're, they're fantastic. So the um, we do whole carrots in Amazaki without salt, and we end up with a very lactic pickle uh, that isn't salty. And it's, it's a bit of a mind trip, because when we go to eat a pickle, we're definitely expecting salt to be there. Uh, so when you eat a pickle that doesn't have it, it's just a really, really interesting. You you pick up way more nuance uh, of flavor in terms of what makes up that carrot, the, the little bits of sweetness and the hint of earthiness and fresh dirt. Like, all those things really come to the forefront. Um, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember. Amazaki, is that the byproduct of sake? I, it is what you make sake from. Uh, so, so do you also add yeast to that? I, well, we when you make amazaki, if you add yeast to amazaki, you will end up with sake. 
So, so it, it is uh, uh, the first step to making it. So uh, when we make Amazaki, we take uh, equal parts um, koji rice or koji barley, whatever we've grown koji on. We take that and an equal part of cooked rice and we mix it together. Uh, we cover it with just enough water to cover it. And then we hold it at 140 degrees Fahrenheit for at least 12 hours. And this is what gives you the sweet rice porridge because at, at that temperature range, the main enzyme is called alpha amylase. It's the main enzyme responsible for breaking down some of the starches in rice into sugar. It's very active at that temperature. And you'll go from this starchy rice tasting mixture to something that is nearly as sweet as honey uh, in about 12 to 24 hours, thanks to these enzymes. So- well, That's almost like an accelerated mirin. I, I, well, yeah, and, and so, you know, mirin is another thing. So we, we make a fair amount of mirin um, as a byproduct uh, when we make very wet koji rice. Uh, we then take this very wet koji cultured rice and we gently press it. And the, the syrup that comes out of it is mirin. Um, in Japan, they have about three different major grades of mirin. They have uh, this syrup that is blended with, with higher alcohol, around 17%. They have the syrup blended with like mid-range alcohol, about 5%. And then if you're lucky, you can find just this fresh syrup. Uh, and that's the rarest grade of mirin in Japan. Um, it has fallen out of favor just because it you know, it, it doesn't go far, right? When you just have the syrup and you're not adding alcohol to it, you've got less to sell and you have to charge more and people don't buy it as much. So uh, it has become increasingly rare, but that's, yeah, exactly. As you said, that's that's mirroring. Well, that's, that's awesome. So final question, or not even a question, talk me out of making soy sauce because I really don't want to put the 12 months in but I kind of do. <laughs> Certainly. Um, you know, soy sauce, it, it's uh, really, really, it's simple to make. Um, essentially what we do is instead of growing koji on rice, we grow it on beans. Uh, so what we'll do is we'll, we'll cook some soybeans off or you can use any type of bean you want. It doesn't have to be a soybean. It could be a garbanzo bean. It could be a, a great northern bean. It, it, it could be, you name it. Uh, any type of bean will work. Uh, so you, you grow the koji on there, and it's the same process for growing the koji on a bean as it is on rice or barley. Uh, you sprinkle the spores on, you incubate it, and it, it'll be there. Uh, so after that, you, we scale out a mixture uh, that comes to one part whole, but it's made up of 75% beans and 25% whole wheat flour that we have moistened with some of the cooking liquid we saved from the beans. Uh, just enough to make it slightly doughy without being sticky. Uh, 
And essentially, you take the two of those and you put them in brine. You, you mash up the, the wheat flour uh, with the beans and, and you put them in a brine. Traditional recipes on the brine call for salt percentages as high as 20%. Uh, but we find that to be almost unpalatable on how salty it is. Uh, so first starting out, you know, try it in the 7% range. That's still plenty salty. And we'll go as low as 2% salt on the brine. And you literally just let it sit there for a long time. Like you said, a year or even longer. Uh, some traditional makers uh, will, will ferment and then age out of soy sauce for five years before they even start deciding to use it. Uh, now, quick question. Do you um, just know brine to cover everything, or is there a ratio of brine to beans? There, There is a ratio of brine to beans, and off the top of my head, I believe it's two parts brine to one part bean and flour mixture. Okay. So, um, and, you know, that's things like this, too, are a sliding scale. Um, we've definitely made, uh, soy-esque sauces, uh, with ratios as, as high as five parts brine to one part bean and, and, uh, flour mix. And you can also do it without the flour if you want. You can do 100% bean. Uh, but that would be, that would be, you know, a, a, the flour and the beans is, is a traditional Chinese style soy sauce. Uh, now, the product that a lot of people think is also soy sauce would be tamari. And tamari is a Japanese product, and it is a byproduct of miso making. So when you make miso, some of the liquid in it separates out, and that liquid is called tamari, and it's used just like soy sauce. Uh, it just, most, virtually all misos don't have flour in them. Uh, so that's why we see uh, tamari has a lot of prevalence nowadays, especially with uh, uh, people adhering to uh, gluten-free diets. Right, right. Well, I guess I better start a batch soon, eh? Yeah, and, you know, the flour you use, too, it could be wheat flour, it could be barley flour. Well, actually, I, I was considering uh, getting some local unmilled grains, because I actually have a source yeah, yeah, no, that'd be fantastic. That'd be fantastic. And you know what? You don't even have to grind it up to flour if you don't want to. You could... Wait, isn't a traditional shoyu roasted whole kernels? Yeah, exactly. So so you can just grow it on the whole the whole berry, the rye berry, the wheat berry, whatever it may be, uh, when, you, when you grow it on the beans also. Uh, do it at the same time, and, and then just go ahead and put it in the brine. All right. Well, there you go. Uh, Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, Quinn, you're very welcome. And uh, I, I can't wait to hear it. I wish you guys the best of best. Yeah, I was uh, a bit selfish and didn't uh, get any questions from anyone. So maybe we'll have to have you on again sometime. Anytime, Queen. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you so much for listening to that interview. If you enjoyed it, please consider sharing it. And also please consider checking out patreon.com 
slash brainstorm kitchen. It really helps us out and uh, it kind of motivates us to keep doing this and, you know, um, really, it really does help. So thank you.